blessing. Open up to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Because I, I kept on saying we, we'd probably finish at the end of Revelation 3, but Revelation is so enticing to me that the further I get into it, the, the more I just want to keep on pushing through. But I, I almost promised that we would just stop at the end of 4. We won't go further. But we will. We'll go into 5, but also tonight. So, so not another sermon in Revelation, but, but we're going to go two chapters tonight. And, and of course, the hardest part of tonight is just going through the reading. Not because it's so long, but because you, I'm, I'm afraid that out of the sheer joy that you experience, the thing I don't believe will even happen is you'll just get raptured. And we have a solid roof, but I'm, I'm sure that in the sheer joy of it, we'll, we'll still remain contained. I don't know if you've ever been to a film festival. Um, if I tell you you look like you'd go to a film festival, it's not a compliment. But anyway, I don't know if you've gone to a film festival, but, but if you can imagine somebody, somebody telling you after they've been the sorts of, the, 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 they, they were summarizing their day, and they would be telling you all about it, and, and they said, you know, I went and I watched a 1940s noir, French noir mystery film. And, and then after that, I think I went and saw a Wes Anderson sort of comedy romance. And then after that, I watched a, a, uh, uh, The Tree of Life uh, uh, by Terrence Malick. Wow, what a, what, that was mind-blowing. And, and then after that, I saw a... If they were telling you that, you'd be fairly dull to then go and think that the history of the world is that there was the beginning in the 1948 noir-themed world, and then it evolved into some kind of uh, a Wes Anderson-styled universe, and, and then what happened, what... Right. So if somebody tells you, in other words, I went to a film festival, and here's what I saw in this order, you would hear them and chronologically receive and, and, and understand what they're telling you entirely differently than if you turned on the History Channel and they were telling you, well, in the year 1100 in England, and then in the year 1200 in England, and then in the year 1500 in England, right? And so it is when you read the book of Revelation. John is having a, a spiritually psychedelic, cosmically amazing, majestic film festival. Or, or, or in other words, a, a series of visions into heavenly realities. And I say that because Revelation 4 starts out, after these things I saw. And, and we would make the error to think what he's saying is, and then I saw what happens next. It says multiple times throughout the book, after this I saw, after this I saw, and, and all that's happening is that God is showing him different things in an order, he's not saying that they occur in these orders. Rather, rather, we're seeing into the heavenly realities which apply to earth in many ways and, and culminate in Christ and his church from a, from, a, from a French noir angle. And then you go into the other cinema and we see it from a, from, a, from a Wes Anderson angle, if I can stretch the analogy. And then you go into the other side and you see it from a Terrence Malick angle and, and, and little snippets of History Channel angles. But the book of Revelation is an order of how John saw them. He's not seeing them in the order that they all take place in. But Re Revelation chapter 4 and 5 reads like this. Can you be upstanding for the reading of the word? <clears throat> And after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were the 24 elders. Uh, sorry, were 24 thrones. And seated on those thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was as it were a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the, seven living, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. 
And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went out and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you are slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom." and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, meaning ten thousands of ten thousands, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth, and wisdom and might, and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, and the elders fell down and worshipped. May God bless this magnificent reading of his authoritative word in our midst this evening. Amen? Amen. Take a seat. <clears throat> I almost feel like wherever we go now is going to be downhill and a failure. And that's the task every week of any preacher. You take God's inerrant word... Hopefully we, we see the glory of Christ in it and then, and then a man made of dust and clay has to speak. But such is the task entrusted to me. Look not at chapter 4, but in chapter 3, the, very, the second last verse in chapter 3, we've seen that final exhortation and encouragement and promise to those who conquer. And Jesus says to the conquering church, to him who conquers will be given to sit on my throne just as I sat on my father's throne. And then the next two chapters are the vision of the father on his throne and the son receiving that power and honor so that symbolically he is taking a seat on the throne. The throne is the focal point of these chapters in two different ways. First, because it's the throne of God, the father, the ancient of days, and it is also going to become the the, the redemptive throne of Jesus Christ, the throne of rule and the throne of grace. 
the throne of sovereignty and the throne of redemption, the throne of rule and the throne of atonement, the throne of the king and the throne of the kingly priest in the line of Melchizedek. In fact, the throne, or this word, is mentioned 17 times in chapter 4 and 5. And not only that, but with everything else that we just explained, and your, what's in your head is the weird animal, the weird crossbred, angelic, spliced being that had all those faces and eyes, and how many times did we have to be told that they had eyes on front and back and within? Could John somehow see within them, inside of them, the eyes that lined their inner walls? We don't know. That's not what John sees first. So, so imagine stepping into a room, and, and, and it's the complete picture. It's the throne room of God with all of those things going on. But none of them catch his eye. Not before he has seen the very center of it all, the very center of the universe, the most glorious thing that is there, which is the throne of God. So he says, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me, that was Jesus' voice, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. That's, that's the main theme of these verses, the, the throne of God, or is to really just say the rule of God, or really just to say Yahweh, the ruling and reigning God. There's a, very, there's a very pastoral purpose that, of course, Jesus, our great shepherd and pastor, and, of course, John would be relaying this. There's a very pastoral purpose. Some of the, the churches have been receiving these exhortations of rebuke and these commandments to repent, and then the next thing they're going to see is the glorious sovereign throne. Do not reject him who speaks from heaven. And there are others who are suffering because they live, remember, in the throne of Satan, or, or they're being attacked by those who call themselves Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, that the dragon is, is chasing them. And, and so it is so pastoral for, for Jesus, through John, through the Holy Spirit, to be reminding us and every church and that first century church, the throne hasn't budged an inch. He's there. It's there. Unmoved, immovable, eternal is the sovereignty of God. It's very pastoral that they would be, be recognizing this. So in the tumult of our own sufferings, I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty. We always read the first few chapters of Job uh, and, and, and forget what a, what a cloud of vacuous void his soul was in because he didn't have the book of Job. He didn't have any book. The Bible wasn't written yet. He's, he's not now. He doesn't even know of the cross. He can't remember back to the cross. He can't do any of that. He's, he's one of those Old Testament saints, blessed and saved and sanctified, but without all the blessings of clarity that we have in the gospel. Here's Job. We're often like him in the sense that hindsight is 2020. A couple of years down the track, you always look back on the most horrible sufferings or, or church tumultuous activities or, or something that happened, the sickness, whatever it be, and go, well, I can see now why. And I can see all the things that God brought through it. If I could just go back to myself and tell myself, you silly little finite human, it's going to work out. It's going to renown to the glory of God. But, but then the next suffering, the next tribulation we, we face, here we are again thrown into to the tumult of question because we're finite. And, and so to the suffering church who feels like all of this stuff happening to them is both random and kind of derailing the plan of God. We were sent to be missionaries and we're, we're being pushed back on and we're being butchered and then our pastor got killed and, and all of this stuff which both looks like God's losing control and also it's a waste of time. Why is this happening? And, and I think an imagery would be kind of as if, as if you were in a war zone. And you're in a war zone, and there's bullets flying, and there's, there's mines going off, and there's, there's, there's shelling, and there's explosions, and your ears are ringing, and, and everything to you is random. And you are stumbling over things, and you are falling, and, and you are, you're, you're grabbing random bits of, of clothing to cover yourself, and, and suddenly you, you in, 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 in the throes of worry, throw yourself through a side door in an alley. And as you stumble into this room, just then, a well-dressed waiter turns to you and says, by name, oh, there you are, perfect timing, just this way, sir. Just this way, man. 
Can you imagine just the contrast of, the, of those realities? I thought I was just in the, in the throes of tumult and then I was right on time. I think a lot of the saints that, that John is writing to, that Jesus is speaking to, are very close to their death. The tribulation is about to come down onto their world and many of them will die. That's, a lot of revelation shows us that. That in that first century, there was a great judgment of God. There was great wars and tribulations. And, and the saints were being sent up to heaven express mode through the swords of the Romans and Jews. But, but while they feel everything's random, they're being told, the second you step place into that throne room, you will realize to the millisecond God's plan was unfolding with exactitude. This throne is a sovereign throne that is unmoved and unchanged, that is eternal in his rule. And we see that, that John kind of, he sees God. He sees God. He, he says uh, uh, in verse 3, and he who sat there had the appearance of, he says, I saw the throne and one who sat on the throne. Which, which is a little bit confusing because the same author is going to write towards the end of his life in 1 John chapter 1 verse 18. Sorry, no, John chapter 1 verse 18. He's going to write, no one has ever seen God. So who is the one sitting on God's throne? It's God. Who is John seeing? It's God. I'll even get, it, get us into a little bit more of a, of a Gordian knot or a little bit more of an exegetical trouble. I'll say it's the Father. It's not the Son. He's seeing the Father that he will then say no one has ever seen, and which I will theologically affirm no one has ever seen the Father. Whenever there is a person in biblical history witnessing or seeing God in the flesh, so to speak, Whenever they're really seeing God, the person of God talking to them in any way, whether you, whether you think of Adam and Eve in the garden walking with him in the cool of the day at their appointed gathering time, or whether you think of, of Moses who, who saw the glory of God or the Moses and the elders who, who saw the feet of God sitting on his throne, or whether you think of Isaiah who looked up and saw God on his temple throne. However we think of this, we need to realize that it is always the Son who is being seen. It is always the second person of the Trinity being witnessed because he is the one who makes the Father known, which is exactly what this verse in John 1 tells us. It goes on, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Or in the, 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 the true Greek, he does exegete him. The Son is who makes the Father known. So, so in all these appearances of seeing the Father, uh, sorry, seeing God, really they're seeing the Son. But I said, I, I think Re Revelation 4 is him seeing the Father, which is impossible. Yet, now, one little, before we go deeper, there's a little bit of flexibility when it's a vision. When he's not really seeing God, he's seeing a vision of God. So even if he saw a person on the throne and he said, I am the Father, not the Son, still wouldn't be a huge issue, though it would never happen because God doesn't do that, but it wouldn't be an enormous issue because it's a vision if it was in the Bible, but it's not. So in fact, we, we never try and picture the Father in any way. So how does John here see the Father on the Father's throne? And the answer is he doesn't see the Father. Who told you that he saw the Father? Because the seeing that he has is really not seeing at all. So, so in other words, John comes to you and goes, I saw the Father on the throne. And you go, I thought you're about to write, you haven't written it yet, but, but I thought you would say that no one has ever seen the Father. And you go, yeah, that's true, no one's ever seen the Father, but I saw the Father. And you go, what did he look like? And you go, emerald, jasper, carnelian, rainbow thing. And you go, oh, you didn't see the Father. <laughs> you saw invisibility. You saw without seeing. That's the reality. Look at, look, look at how he explains it. Uh, verse 3. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So is it a rainbow or is it a rock? Uh, uh, and then that's basically all you get. It, it's just, it's blinding light, which actually goes perfectly hand in hand with what we're told in First Timothy by Paul, chapter 6, verse 16, when he says, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. So what you see with John seeing the Father is a non-seeing. All that he is seeing 
It is an inability to see. All that he's seeing is the unapproachable light. Does that count as laying eyes on the appearance of the Father? No. The point is that at the best you can see, it is an unseeable glory. That's the point. But it is this representation of the presence and the glory and the beauty of the Father. And then we see the next thing is the 24 elders around the throne. These 24 elders are on, are on thrones themselves. They have crowns on. I think that in their worshipful mode, they're supposed to be throwing back to the, the Levitical 24 priests who were, who were leading the worship in the temple. I think that because they are in white garments with crowns sitting on thrones, and the Christians in chapter 3, verse 5, are told that they'll receive white garments... In chapter 3, verse 11, they'll, they have crowns that they should not let be taken off of them. And in chapter 3, verse 21, we will sit on God's throne. And in Revelation 20, we're told we reign with Christ. I think that these 24 elders are representative of the global historical church of God, ecclesia of God, people of God, the elect. Because, I, and I think the number 24 is there, um, I think, I've read commentaries, and I conclude with a bunch of them, right? Uh, but, but I think that, 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 that it is representative of the 24 is representing the, the 12 patriarchs of Israel, God's Old Testament people, and the 12 apostles of Jesus, the, the New Testament people. And both the apostles and the patriarchs are representing the people beneath them, the, the people who they are foundations of. And the foundation of the Israelites were the patriarchs, and we're told in later on when we see the city, the, the foundation stones have the apostles written on them. They're our foundations, Ephesians 2 tells us. We're built on the foundation of the apostles. So the 12 Old Testament people, the 12 New Testament people are representative of God's timeless, eternal, worshipping people. The church, some of who are in heaven, some of who are still on earth. Some who have not been born yet, some who are dead and gone to God. Then we see the sea of glass that looks like crystal. And this is kind of a, a reflection of the earthly temple, which still stood in, in, in the day of Revelation being written, I believe, it, it being written in 67, the temples to be destroyed in AD 70, and, and, then, and John seeing the more glorious eternal reality of the shadowy earthly reality, the book of Hebrews says. And at the temple, to wash the priest's clothing before they could enter was what they called the bronze sea, which was just an enormous bath, beautifully cast thing of, of water, of pure water to cleanse. And so I'm, I think that's what this is, this is referring to. <coughs> the glorious worship that we're about to see happens on the other side of the sea. I think the reason that it was called the Bronze Sea back in the Old Testament, I think that the reason that was pictured, that you enter God's presence after going through, I guess, the, the through the water, the through the sea, is because of that picture in Exodus 14, 15. When the Israelites came through the Red Sea, their enemies were drowned and crushed and washed to the, saw, to the shore, and then the new redeemed people that would come out of the exodus to their salvation so that they can worship God now stood on the other side of a now calm, glassy sea. And there they sing the song of Moses and glorify God for his redemption, which is what we're going to see the elders and the, and, the, and the beasts do. So I think that's the idea. There's this enormous See, in other words, we worship God on the other side of salvation. There's always worship to be given to God for his salvation to us. And then we see the four living creatures. The four living creatures with all of their, their, their very strange explanations. It's, it, if you, you need to go and read Ezekiel chapter 1 and, and Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, and, and some of Daniel as well. Just throw in all of Daniel while you're doing your light Sunday afternoon reading. And there we see pictures of similar creatures. Uh, sometimes they're cherubim, sometimes they're seraphim. I'm confused enough to say, I land somewhere in the middle. And so I think that they're, they are a mix. They're, their descriptions take some from the cherubim and some from the seraphim. Whatever they are, they're, they're a glorious angelic creature in God's presence. The, the cherubim were the, were the angels on the Ark of the Covenant. 
whose wings touched, who, who were also set in front of the Garden of Eden so that man could not go back and take of the tree of life. The cherubim were the, were the defenders of God's glory and his holiness. They were, they were the proclaimers of God's holiness. Also the seraphim in, in Isaiah 6, they were the worshiping angels who gave glory to the holy God. In other words, compare the Lord's throne to the other ancient thrones. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture or read the descriptions, I hope you have, of Solomon's throne. It was very common in, in the ancient world and, and still somewhat today to, to set a glorious throne in a palace up on top of carvings of creatures. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, they would have their sphinx-like, male-faced, winged cherub things. Thrones were set on these creatures to show the king's dominance over the created order. Whatever animal you can think of that you're afraid of out there, it's represented by these carvings under my throne. And here God, of course, is on top of these mixes of all kinds of creatures, but they're living creatures. They're not carved creatures. They're powerful creatures. They're not, they're not just pictures of creatures. He is the greater, more glorious God and king. And then we see the song. The song that these angels, these Cherubs, cherubim, seraphim, beings, creatures sing. And look in verse 8. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night. They never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This song of theirs is an unending, repetitive song where they sing of both his holiness and his eternality. They, they say, holy, 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 which was a, a Hebrew way of, of, of emphasizing something. If you want to emphasize something, you do it twice in the Hebrew. Uh, Jesus didn't just want people to believe that he was true. He said, truly, truly. There's the emphasis. The, the English version of an underline. You can go and read The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul and receive a tremendous background into the, the worship of angels in Isaiah 6. I recommend you do. That here's, here's the angels. He's not just holy. He's not just holier. He's holy-est. He is holy to the superlative highest degree that Hebrew literature could ever convey. He is holy, holy, holy. They are worshipping his, his otherness, his uniqueness. So, so of course, it's, it's often said that holiness means moral purity. He doesn't sin. Yes, he's holy in that sense, of course. But he's holy in that sense because he's holy in an infinite ontological sense. He's other. He's made us to know him and then he makes himself known, but he's, he's other. He is unique. There's nothing like him. In other words, he's not in a category of being. He's not like one of us, but he's not the first in the category. He's not the highest being. He's a being unlike us, not in any of our categories. He is so distinct by his very nature that it is therefore just right to worship him. Then he's told, of course, that he is in, in this worshipful song. He, is, he was and he is and he is to come. That is that this God who they are worshiping, the true and only one God is the God of all time, who is outside of time who yet relates to us in the moment that is time, day by day and moment by moment and second by second. And yet, that is an act of infinite condescension. He's not traveling through time with us. He is outside of and around and, and, and within every moment of time. But really, he's, he's relating to us by condescension. He's not going through time like us. He was and he is and he is to come, the king on the throne. The one on the throne as every other throne in the world that has ever been carved, every other throne goes through an endless cycle of emptying, overseeing a funeral, and then watching a coronation as it is refilled. Every throne on earth in all of history that you see in any museum or that will ever be built could tell you the tales and the stories of all the different kings that ever sat upon them and demanded sovereignty. This throne has only ever known one king. This throne was never sat upon. This throne never had a coronation that placed Yahweh upon it. 
This throne has never seen the rise and fall of the Yahweh kingdom. This throne has only ever and eternally known the rule of the God who is that throne. Yahweh, the true God of Scripture, has always been. Been what? No, no, you're mishearing. He has always been. When he speaks to Moses, I am. You think there's a translation error. I am what? He is something. What is he? He is. He just is. He is the isness. He is the source of all isness and being. He is. And he was. And he always will be all that he is. I don't know if, uh, if you're aware, but we have, a, we have a new king. We have a king, in fact, for the first time. I'm going to guess, I'll compliment the oldies, for the first time in any of our lives, we have a king. <clears throat> I know my mask is off, but I'm complimenting it. We have a king. King Charles III. Do you know that there'll never be, never has been, never even could be a Yahweh III? A Yahweh II? He's not the first of a long list. He is just Yahweh. I, I think, I, I always grew up and laughed at people in my family who called themselves royalists and, and wanted to watch the, the Queen's address on Christmas in the middle of the backyard cricket game. That was the dumbest thing to me. Never joined them, and I regret it. I look forward to watching with eager eye. We don't know when it's going to be yet. They have the time of mourning over the Queen, but I look forward to watching the coronation of the King. Coronations are glorious things. I'll go so far as to say this. I wasn't, I wasn't going to, but I'll say it. You watch a coronation. You should just go and Google the English throne, by the way. You watch a coronation, and idolatry starts to make sense. When you think, and it's pathetic, all it takes is some, some, some shiny metal and, and, and a structure to make humans go, that human must be divine. But I look at the picture, and I'm just in awe. I realized after looking at this picture for, for a couple of minutes, I, I took a breath. I didn't realize that I hadn't been breathing as I was trying to take in this, this like the throne is a wall. It's just this there's carvings in every moment and every minuscule part. Of it. it is glorious. You, you see just what humans can do after a few years, a couple of rocks that look a bit shiny, some buffs, some elbow grease, el elbow grease and, 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 and then a guy in some colorful robes. And you realize, I'm just so fickle. You know, I think I'm like John. I think I'd see an angel and immediately worship. I, I don't know what I'd do in the presence of the real throne. But coronations are glorious things, except that the most unglorious thing about a coronation is the fact that it is necessary. The most pathetic thing about any coronation is the fact that it has to happen. That person wasn't king. Now he's king, and soon he won't be king. And he's named after another king, who came after another king, and soon we will have no king. But this throne, infinite in glory. He was, and he is, and he always will be the only rightful, true, real, glorious, infinite, sovereign, majestic king. What good news for fledgling, weak churches of Christians like we read in Revelation 2 through 3. And then, and then there's more. The elders' response, I think, is the rightful response. They just headlong leap to the ground. They just throw themselves to the floor. So we hear the fact that these guys are on thrones and we think is... Is Yahweh okay with that? Did, did the engineers consult God when they were building other thrones in the, in the throne room for Yahweh? Yeah, of course. God has no problem with elevating his creatures. God has no problem with enthroning creatures, even kings throughout history or angels. He has no problem with imparting some glory to created things because the higher he lifts them, the more evident it is when they jump off that throne and worship him at his feet. So yes, they have these high and lifted up thrones in the presence of God, but they're just balconies to leap from. 
They're just to show us, look how the most holy things, and that's us, by the way, we're on those thrones, we're the ones ruling with Christ, we're the ones robed in white and crowned with gold and sitting on thrones with Jesus, but what do they do as a great and perfect example of what Christians do in response to the reality of God's sovereign rule? They throw down. They realize that anything and everything they have, in all those blessings that Jesus promised to the conquerors, are simply his. They're his. I'm sitting on his gifts, and then we are called in worshipfulness to cast ourselves down, and so they do. They leap down, and look at what else they do. They throw their, they throw their crown at the feet of God. They throw their crown in submission. All, all authority we have is simply a minuscule sliver of, of Christ's spiritual authority. It, it's, it's no threat to God because it's perfectly in line with God's will. And we use it, or here is the exhortation, we ought to be thinking of every one of our blessings and authority as being perfectly in submission to Christ or he removes it. And here's their song. Look at their song in verse <coughs> Verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. What's the two themes of this song? He just is, he just did. That's it. Why is he so worthy to be worshipped? Why are they compelled cycle after cycle after cycle every time the living creatures call out, they cast themselves down to the throne? Why? He just is worthy. He just is. He is worthy to receive all of this, so give it to him. We give him our crowns, our glory, our honor. We give it to him. He just is worthy. Full stop. No argument. No reasoning. He just is. And why did he create the world? He just did. He did it by his will. In other words, you wanted to, and then everything. We're just lost for words with the simplicity of this. God wanted to make everything as it is, and so he did. Next. He did. He is worthy. He has done glorious things by simply the, the will of the majestic sovereign. And that's the, that's the big theme we're picking up as we close out chapter 4. I hope you're okay to do another chapter. And go into Romans 5. Revelations 5. I'll stick to Revelation. <laughs> I turn Romans tonight. We've seen his majestic sovereignty. It's not an evil sovereignty. It's not an unimpressive sovereignty. It's majestic and he is in control. Now look at Revelation 5. And what we see is we, this, this movement from creation to redemption. He's the creator God who's sovereign over creation. And now we're going to see... The redeeming God who is sovereign over redemption. The creator God on his throne, the redeeming God taking his throne. In other words, we see the throne of the Father, chapter 4, and the throne or rule of the Son in chapter 5. And chapter 5 is a great, great word picture, a scene of the coronation of Jesus Christ. I know we were saying before, I thought God doesn't need a coronation. Well, he doesn't. Not Yahweh. But the Messiah needs a coronation. Because he has entered in time into humanity, redeemed us, atoned for us, and then is receiving the kingdom from the king that has no beginning. But Christ's rule as mediator has a beginning. We're told so often in the New Testament, he died, he bled, he atoned, he made purifications for sins, and then he sat down. So there is a coronation for Jesus, our Messiah, our Redeemer, our mediator, in chapter 1, uh, verse 1, we see the scroll, the scroll that is in the right hand of the rainbow stone thing that represents the glory of God that we just can't put words to. Somehow, the, the, the scroll is shown, and to, here's my summary of what the book is. I think that scroll is the book or the account of the reign of Christ. You have in your Bible books called 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles. And they end with things like, and, and all that this king did, is it not accounted for us in the book of the Chronicles? Everything Jesus will do as reigning king, including this moment now, your moment of salvation, your death, the rise and fall of the West, would that be God's will, are all accounted in that scroll. But the question is, who can open the new king's reign book? Who gets to crack it open 
Swing it open, start reading it, and seeing the blessings of the new kingdom flow into history. Who can do that? Because, because the Old Testament kingdom didn't work, we would think. I mean, it didn't accomplish what we had hoped the great, the great redemption to be. The, the bloods of bulls and goats could not atone for us, so we'll need something to atone for our sins. The kings were sinners, so we'll need a great king that doesn't sing, that doesn't sin. The, the, the priests themselves had to make sacrifices for themselves, so we'll need a, a pure priest. I mean, we need something better than the old covenant, something glorious. Who can open this book that shows us what it can do and be, that opens up to us the new kingdom? And they search under the earth, in the earth, in the heavens, and no one, nothing, not the closest angel to God's presence is worthy to open that and to be the one through whom God's blessings of redemption flow. And yet, and yet one is seen. When they say who is worthy to open it, really what they're asking is, who can pay for human sin? Who can carry the curse of sin upon himself and undo it? Who can satisfy God's wrath? And the answer is, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He has done what he's told us to be doing all through these letters. He has conquered, and therefore he is worthy. And then we see the coronation. That as John turns and looks to him who is announced as a lion from the royal line of Judah, from the royal line of David, he sees, what does he see? If you're at King Charles III's coronation, you won't be invited. Were you to be, were you to be, you would be sitting there in our, in our seats and at some point, all rise and behold, and we would look to the king, and, and the enormous doors would swing open, and we would see him. And, and he'd have a robe of some kind on, he'd have a, 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 a crown yet to be put on, uh, he would have uh, beautiful clothing, a train of people, he would walk up to the throne, he would be given the crown, he'd be given the, the orb, the sovereignty orb, one of the coolest things. It's, 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 this, it's basically a pokeball that says that, that, that God has given this, this monarch the, the authority to rule over the, the British Empire. Really cool, it's got a big cross on it because Jesus is king. And then they get the scepter and, and, and the crown. That's what you'd see in that coronation. What do you see in the Lamb's coronation? He turns and looks, and next to the throne that he didn't see before, next to the throne he sees now, the lion? No, the lamb. Dressed in blood. Lambs are white. When they're slain, you can tell. Covered in bright red crimson. There is Jesus, the lamb, the lion, slain yet ruling. Dead, now living. Conquered, now the conqueror. Standing ready to receive, and that he does. He receives that. He has on him the, the seven horns, showing that the horns are prophetic language of power, fullness of power, omnipotence. He has eyes, which is the Holy Spirit, the fullness of his omniscience, and he receives that scroll. And when he ascends the throne, we don't actually ever see Jesus sit down on that throne, but when he ascends the throne by receiving the scroll, we get this, again, a round of worship between the elders and everybody else. When he ascended the throne, we see the 24 elders, they jump down again. Look at, uh, <clears throat> uh, look at verse 8. When he'd taken the scroll of chapter 5, the four living creatures and the 24 elders and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, and this time... I don't know, they've got very deep pockets. They, they, have, a lamp, they have a harp now, somehow, uh, and also a bowl of incense, so the scene's changing quickly. They, they fall down with the harp to sing and the incense to offer, which is the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Not the song of creation of the eternal king that's never been coronated, but the new song of redemption for the king who has taken that throne from his father in submission to rule. They sing the new song, and this new song is all about his redemption. Worthy are you to take that scroll, or in other words, to rule over God's new kingdom, and to open its seals for he has this worthiness because... You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God 
for ev from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them one kingdom. You have made them a kingdom, a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The beautiful, one of the most beautiful words in the Bible is ransom. Ransom. That your deliverance, your freedom required a payment, required a cost. Don't believe any nonsense that says that the ransom God paid was to Satan to let you go. That's that movie with the white witch and the weird creatures. That, that's a kid's book. It's not theology. Why I have to explain that to theologians and cemetery pastors, sorry, Semi seminary trained pastors, I should get that right, <laughs> is confusing to me. The ransom was not paid to Satan. The ransom was God himself in flesh, Jesus Christ. The ransom giver was God, the Father, demanding payment. And he was the one that he satisfied. Only he could satisfy himself and Jesus could, I mean, I'm still angry. Can you imagine the, the, the compliment that the Father is giving to Satan to say, I think a fair price to satisfy your standards is myself. Calling him an equal? Little rebel tribe peasant king tries to revolt against the great kings of old. Do you think they offer them the kingdom or the queen? Or do you think they stomp their head in public, put their head on a pike to show, don't do that. Don't do that. No, it was him. Only he could require such a price, and he did. Only he could give such a price, and he did. Only Jesus, that price being made in our flesh to pay for our sin, had done so and could then complete that price making, and therefore he has ransomed. He's bought back from our lostness and slavery to sin and dominion under death. He has purchased back a people that is multicolored, multilanguaged, multi-face, shape, height, size, culture, song, everything. Every tribe, every language, every nation, every people, the ethne, every Gentile, the language for nations, they have all, a, a sampling of them all will be brought to Christ who he purchased and will bring to his father and they reign on the earth. And then we see the living creatures and the elders and the angels again. So verse 11, uh, another, this is the second round of the second round of worship. And then I looked and I heard around the throne, so it's as if, as if the fog is lifting or, or more layers are being added to the film or, 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 or his eyes are opening more and more and he's seeing things he didn't see before as his eyes adjust to the heavenly vision and the blinding light is at least dimmed a little bit to see the other less glorious things yet still glorious. And verse 11, I looked and I heard around the throne and around the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels. Underline that as one of the most tremendous understatements in Scripture. The word many. Numbering myriads, the, the Greek word for 10,000. I saw 10,000 rows of 10,000 angels. That's 100 million. Big number. And, it seems ridiculous to now say, and I saw thousands of rows of thousands. He's not giving us a single numerical number, but, but if he was, if he says there's at least multiple, because he says 10,000s, so there's at least 20,000 rows of at least 20,000 angels, at least 400 million angels, and at least another 40 million angels who would lift up their voices to sing, and so they did, saying with a, here's the other understatement, loud voice. <laughs> you get a hundred of us in this room and sitting right here front row with your voices bellowing over me up to the throne to him who deserves it. And I love that sound. It's a loud noise. That same word doesn't deserve to be given to that. 400 million angels plus the innumerable elect. Can I just, can I just point out that, that the grand majority of humanity will be saved? John looks at 400 million plus angels and numbers them. 
But when he sees the, the, the group of the elect later on, he says, and a, num- a crowd that no one could number. I didn't even turn to the angel and say, how many? He couldn't give it to us. 400 million is nothing. The elect, innumerable. Billions. Not a small sliver of humanity. The billions. The majority, the grand, the great, the glorious number. But, but we're back to the angels. And with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature. Now we're not even just the angels, but everything that has ever been existent, that has ever had breath in their lungs, is now expelling some kind of language and praise as the the lions roar and the elephants throw out their shout and the birds sing and the humans all sing out every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the and to the lamb so to the father and to his incarnate son our savior be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders they don't end it they go back to the beginning Then they fell down and worshipped, which is the thing that is part of the cycle. This is going on right now. This is is ongoing and unending. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. I promise you we'll we'll stop preaching at some point, but you don't don't look like you want to stop. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 18. It's my conviction, I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm, I'm not a small minority, but a minority of the interpreters who would say that much of Revelation is in that period of time when, when the, the, the Jewish nation was about to be judged through the destruction of their nation and temple for killing the Messiah, and the church was being built. And so that's part of, I think, part of the theme in Revelation. Earthly temple passing away, the spiritual temple being built. I think in that same theme, Hebrews is written to the, to the Christian Jews who are, who are being tempted to go back to what they could see, what they could touch, what they could feel. They were tempted to go back to the temple instead of worshiping Christ in the catacombs of persecution. And the writer says in verse 18, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice of whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. He's throwing back to Mount Sinai where law was given. He's speaking back to that day and going, you know what? You don't have the physical impressive thing, which, by the way, was filled with fear. You're not coming to the temple. I mean, sorry, to the mountain, to the, to the voice and thunder every Sunday, are you? As this letter of Hebrews is being read, the church, maybe even the same churches to the, to the, of Revelation, they're sitting in their quiet catacombs, their, their house churches, their, their rented rooms in Springwood Community Hall, their little rented Helen's Vale rooms down on the Gold Coast, the, the 10, 20 people who, who rocked up, the, the, the fledgling little group of believers. They're reading this letter and they're like, yeah, we, we, we didn't come to the thundering noise, the lightning, the gold, the glory. Which, of course, then... Our conclusions, so when you come to church, there's no Mount Zion, there's no city of God, there's no Jerusalem, there's no angels, there's no glorious gathering, there's no seeing the shedding of blood, there's none of that. It's just church. Old Testament had cool stuff, boring, then heaven. I mean, if you want to think about Zion and city of God and Jerusalem and angels and glorious gathering, then yeah, I guess we do get that when we die. Is that our conclusion? Hebrews goes on in verse 20. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, 22. You haven't come to that stuff. But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, and to God, the judge of all, 
and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That means the righteous people who are now dead and perfect. They were righteous but imperfect like us. Now they're righteous and perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you see that what he's saying? He's saying every Sunday you gather with 20 or 200 in a grand building, cathedral, or rented room, whether your church is six weeks old or 600 years old, the grandest preacher ever, or a fledgling little guy that's really given it a go. Every Sunday, you're in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. You enter into, now you're going to say, well, not physically, no doubt. You're not literally coming to the locale called the old Mount Zion. But the writer of the Hebrews says you have come by faith in Christ and the, and the assembly of the saints. You're at Mount Zion right now. We come twice a Sunday because it's such a great mountain of salvation now. Not Mount Sinai where you get law. Mount Zion where you see Christ. The sprinkled blood. And we're surrounded right now by the, by the cloud of witnesses that went before us. Do we see them? No. Do we talk to them? No. Do we communicate with them? No. Are we with them? Yes. How thin the veil is between a church service and the heavenly worship. Because we're all before that throne. Every Sunday. I, we said it all sorts of parts throughout the Revelation series. There's no such thing as a perfect church. Spurgeon used to say, there's no such thing. If you find one, leave or you'll make it imperfect. We've continually said we give our lives for the church, not because she's perfect, but because, because she's the church, the city of the living God, the bride of the lamb that was slain for us. She's worth it. And yet I want to go back on my words, as I've done a couple of times this sermon, and say every single church, even Sardis, even Laodicea, as long as they are a true church, every church that worships, worships Jesus every Sunday is the perfect church. There's only one perfect church. It's the church in heaven. But every Sunday, every Sunday we come together, we're gathering with them. In one sense, every church can claim, however unimpressive or glorious, every local gathering of church can claim, we're taking part in the perfect church service today. We can take from Revelation 5 and 4 just a couple of points of what worship should be like. Since we do pray, don't we, to Jesus, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I pray that for the church. Not just our mission, not just our work, but our services. May your will be done here in worship as it is done in heaven. And I think themes coming out of these two chapters are this. Glory all goes to God. Very clear. There is an intentional and absolute focus and climax to Jesus Christ, the Lamb slain and the ruling King. Every church service should have that theme echoing and resounding. The resounding theme of Christ's atonement and exaltation and enthronement. One thing here, if we take anything from the angels and every creature that sings, God likes it loud. Say it again until I get an amen. God likes it loud. Amen. Not just because the amplifiers are turned up, but because our voices realize this reality and we sing like we believe it. We invite and welcome all people and all people groups into Christ. That's what the church should be and look like. And every Sunday, we think of ourselves as joining with heaven in our songs. Whether you are whether you have known Jesus a long time, I want you to think more glorious about the church. I want you to give more time. My cards are on the table. I know I'm the pastor. I want you to give more time, more money, more prayer, more service, more efforts, more gifts to the building of the kingdom of Jesus because that's what we've got looking forward to. If you're not a Christian, I want nothing more than for you to believe that Jesus has and is giving you now the call to be saved and forgiven. He has his arms open. He says, I died for you. 
I rose. Woe on you if you live your life in your sins and never call on me. But blessing is given to you. Forgiveness is given to you. And an enrollment in this kingdom is given to you if you simply call on me. You're in the hills and the valleys and a far country away in sin. Jesus says, just call. I will hear. From the grave, I will hear. Whether you be in the, in the grave of sin and, and living death, just utter Christ's name, save me. He will hear. He will save you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for words and portions of your word like this that leave us so humbled and then so sick and tired of ourselves that we are so unhumble, so, so, so straining in our minds that we could just remove more and more of our sin, just wishing that we could make ourselves lower and lesser and lesser of ourselves, lest we ever try and get in the way of the glory that is due to you. We repent of those sins. We repent of making church about us, trying to put forward our preferences and our desires and what we want this, the city of the living God to do for us, trying to use the thrones we've been given to, to muster some glory and following for ourselves. Lord God, forgive us. Make us those who are like the 24 elders, using all of the gifts, all of the power, all of the glory, all of the honor and the blessing given to us in the gospel to glorify and uplift the name of God and his Christ. Father God, would you, would you fill this church with a sense of your glory, with a sense of your holiness, with a sense of your power to rule and to save? Would you fill us with people? Would you fill us with people who are newly being saved? Save people tonight, Lord God, and give them faith. Give them this visible, the, the spiritual eye to see the invisible reality of Christ, the lamb who was slain for them, resurrected and now reigning. Lord, fill us with new people. Fill us with, with people who come to know Jesus in our midst and, and are gifted and glory, uh, given the glorious blessings of the gospel in our midst. Lord God, please make us a soul-winning church. God, in all these things, we could, we could pray for hours and years. Apparently, we could pray for all of time and at the end only conclude that you are worthy of another round. We will never be able to give you the glory you are worth. We thank you that eternity is given to us to try. We thank you for this time in the church and we glorify you and your glorious son in whose name we pray. And everybody said, amen.